Hey everybody, it is episode 92 of the Running Rogue podcast. Steve and Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Hey Steve. Hello Chris, how we doing? Doing well. Excited to be coming back today with listener questions and answers. It's been a little while since we did one of these episodes. Our last one, our fourth edition was episode 79, so you can always go back and check that one out. These are my favorites. This will be... Round five of our listeners' questions sort of series, and we've got a lot of them to get through today, so we may or may not get through all of them. So if you've sent in a question, thank you. Look for an answer if we don't get to to it, to, to it today on a future listener question episode. Well, we've got lots of good questions, and we really appreciate that interaction from you guys. Of course, as always, we've got some current events to start with, and... And we've got some fun ones and some controversy to kind of cover, some running level controversy at least. We'll start with where we left off the intro of our last episode, which is talking about, at least our intro of the last episode, which was talking about Colleen's, Colleen Quigley's stated goal of winning the Fifth Avenue Mile. She was going head to t- head, to head with... The incomparable. Incomparable. <laughs> the queen of the Fifth Ave Mile, Jenny Simpson, who'd won it five years in a row prior to this year. And darn near, if she didn't at least give her a run for her money, you know, at least put her on the ropes a little bit. But Colleen didn't quite get it done. She did get second just behind Jenny, who ran a 418. Quigley was back at 419 with Melissa Courtney from Team New Balance finishing in third. Emma Coburn was in fourth just off the podium by three-tenths of a second. So let's take the Jenny versus Colleen head-to-head. And you and I were listening to Jenny's interview afterwards with NBC. This was also, you can go back and watch the replay on NBC Gold. And they had... An interview with Jenny after the race with Lewis Johnson. And he said, you know, he basically asked her, how'd you get this one done? And she said, and I'm paraphrasing, something to the effect of, I knew they were coming for me and that I wanted to make them risk life and limb in order to take this crown away from me. And so she went hard relatively early, put everybody on the ropes and tried to hold them off. Colleen came back on her at the very end and kind of pulled shoulder to shoulder with maybe 20, 25 meters to go. But Jenny had saved one more gear and came away with the win by four-tenths of a second over Quigley, who ran a very solid for a steeplechaser, 419.2. So what do you think this means for Jenny Simpson? Obviously, it's a stacked American field, but it's not necessarily the best of the best in the mile, at least. But a solid win and certainly something difficult to do over and over again like she has. So what do you think? Well, I, I think I'm most impressed by Jenny calling shots. You know, that's that's uh, she called it beforehand. She put herself out there. And then she gave herself a race plan that basically um, was holding that, sh- was, was basically still calling that shot all the way through the whole race. She didn't, she, this is a person who's really got the, has the skill set to have just sat back and waited, kind of like she's now done lately in her track races. She could have sat back, waited, see what played out. But no, she put her money where her mouth was, went to the front, and kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, I mean, I, I think Jenny is 
she's always going to be a hero of mine because of the way, the style that she races with and the aggressiveness she races with. And honestly, her candidness after that interview is great because she's just effusive and gushing, mostly because she's just so excited that she ran really well. Her, her, her ability to be articulate under duress is really, really amazing as well. How, how well she's composed herself after a race. Um, but I, I just, I'm just, again, yes, this race in the grand scheme of things is not really a big deal, except it's sort of cap, the final capstone of the final race of their track season. And Jenny always comes present, correct, ready to roll. Um, and to get this win, um, you know, we predicted that she would, but uh, she had to fight for it because Colleen came up on her shoulder i was really impressed with colleen's race i mean we knew she was coming strong this season with the way that she finished her her european circuit out even though she ran at some of the lesser uh smaller races she was running very very fast and we knew colleen was a danger which just shows you how strong and how fit jenny is to hold off a reserve a resurgent and 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 closing colleen that's a big race for jenny to hold colleen off there because the way colleen played it they could have gone a very different way yeah, and I think Colleen's only mistake was not waiting till the very, very end. And you know, I mean, just to give the listener context, this is Fifth Avenue Mile. It's basically a slight, neg- you know, slight downhill mile, but it's a straightaway, one mile straightaway on Fifth Avenue where you're going slightly downhill, so the times are always fast. But it's really difficult to gauge distances when you're looking straightaway. On the road, and I don't know if you've ever done a mile like this. I have done once. We used to have one in Austin called the Congress Avenue Mile that went straight down Congress Avenue. And you see the finish line for a long way off, but you don't know exactly how far it is away. It's really hard to gauge distances. And I think in this case, Colleen's only mistake was pulling up next to her with 20 meters to go versus trying to time her kick for the very Three end. meters to yeah. go, right. So, but she, game, she, she was a gamer. She put Jenny on the ropes, made Jenny use that last gear. But to give Jenny credit, as she said in her finish, she said, look, they don't give these to you. You still have to win. And she did against a very legitimate field that had American and British athletes. Now, it's interesting that second and fourth are steeplechasers to me. Emma's result here running 420.5 to get fourth in a lot of ways is maybe the most impressive of the top four. We know Colleen has those gears, that turnover, that ability to go really fast over 1,500 meters. Emma has a fast 1,500-meter PR, but it's certainly not in her wheelhouse like it is for Colleen. So for her to finish fourth, to run 420 in the mile, even if it's downhill, that's impressive. And yeah, but sure Jenny set that up for her. That was a <laughs> maybe that so. was, by, by pulling them to such a fast time, it, it, it made those those – those who didn't belong there got pushed out, you know? Maybe so, but you had, you know, Kate Mackey, 425, five seconds back. Steph 12 from Great Britain, 427. Kate Grace, 428, who's a miler and 800-meter runner. Sarah Vaughn, 432. So you had some decent names rounding out that list that didn't go with Jenny and that weren't there at the end for who knows what reasons, but... It does set the table as we've already set the table for this Emma versus Colleen versus Courtney Frerichs matchup that will be coming hopefully in 2019. To set up for 2020, it's just exciting. Another yeah. thing, Chris, um, another little subtext here is 
three of the top four athletes in this race were New Balance athletes yep. and not Nike athletes. Um, again, a big shout out to New Balance for continuing to support our sport and to give the best these best American women a shot to be best in the world. Um, it's a big, you know, New Balance really sort of owns New York right now. They're spending a lot of money there for the New York City Marathon and also for this race. But um, still, it's just a great way. I'm just, it's so awesome to see um, New Balance put their money where their mouth is and to continue to support great American distance runners, especially on the women's side. I, I wish we saw a little more of a push for them on the men's side and we saw some more depth, uh, but that Nike still has the stranglehold there, but it's shown that, that the stranglehold is not quite there completely with um, on the women's side with New Balance supporting three of the top four athletes at this race. Yeah, and they had five of the top ten on the women's side. On the on the men's side, they got the victor as well. Yeah. Jake Jake Whiteman, great great from Great Britain, British athlete, ran three fifty three to beat Nick Willis, the venerable Nick Willis, New Zealander, who's a two time Olympic medalist in the fifteen hundred. He was just behind in three fifty four. And then there was this unattached British athlete, Neil Gorley. Who finished third in 3:55, just edging edging out Eric Avila. I think the more interesting story on the men's side is who wasn't at the front. Because if you look at that field and you start looking down the list, you've got Craig Ingalls who was eighth, Johnny Gregoric who was ninth, Ben Blankenship who was eleventh, Ben True who was twelfth, Matthew Centrowitz who finished sixteenth in just, just over four hours, Lopez Lamong who was eighteenth in 401, Boris Barian 416. Drew Wendell, TFL, 4.23. <laughs> so you had multiple Olympians and world champion participants well down the list. And so do you think that was a case of them basically getting their payday and having a good time in New York versus really being representative of what they're bringing from a fitness standpoint right now? Absolutely. I mean, who really cares? <laughs> Only Jenny. Yeah. Um, they, I don't think they really cared. I don't. I think they did all go for the payday. I think that they went for a fun experience. And um, although Central has been very serious about this race in the past, um, and and as we know, Nick Willis is always ready for this race. He always wants to get a win here. I mean, Jake Whiteman is a really good. I mean, he was he's up there in the European circuits. He's right there, right on the edge, right on the cusp of being a a, a serious competitor at these levels. So it's not surprising to see him win. But that time is a little bit on the slow side, Chris, for what these guys can run with a downhill mile. So it really opened the door for the major kickers. They didn't run it as hard. And so unless somebody was going to make that race be much tougher, I, I just don't see – I'm not that surprised to see all those guys that far back. Um, was Chris O'Hare in the race? He was. He was there as well. Yeah, well, because he's – Also on, down the list. And that's surprising because he's on fire and has been running really, really well this year. So anyway – Obviously, the women took it a lot more seriously than the men. Um, sorry, Jake, not to not to throw your result under the bus, but <laughs> the times were slow relatively for a downhill mile. All right, so the next topic we got to talk about because we have mentioned this name quite a bit, but Jake Robertson from he's a New Zealand athlete as well. We've talked about he's running Toronto. And he's the twin who, along with his brother, moved to Kenya. And ultimately, I think they now train separately in Ethiopia and Kenya. 
he was competing against the great Mo Farah in the Great North Run, which is a half marathon in the UK. That's also a net downhill course. Farah got the win in this one to win his fifth consecutive Great North Run. Jake Robertson finished second as Mo pulled away over the last few miles. Robertson ended up about 30 seconds back in this one. Vivian Churiat, who who we've talked about before in this podcast, who she won. What race am I blanking on? Uh, she's marathoners, ran one. Um, I underestimated uh, her in uh, London. Yes. She won London, yep. right? Yep. Mm-hmm. She won London. Yes, she won London. And so she was first on the women's side, 67-43. Farrah and Robertson were in the 59s with Mo running a PR by four seconds. Now, granted, it's not a record-eligible course because it's slightly downhill, so it doesn't perhaps count in the official PR record books for Mo. But he got the win over Jake, both running under 60. What do you think this means for their respective marathons? You've got Chicago for Mo and Toronto for Jake coming up next month. Well, it shows that Mo's ready to go. There's no doubt about that, but we would have expected that. Um, it also shows Jake, I think, you know, he's I think he's in that 205 range. I think he's got that ability to run in that in that range and to be able to run with Mo for that long. It is a bit disappointing for Jake, I'm sure, to have lost 40 seconds to Mo over the final two to three miles, but once you're broke, you're broke, you know, and he probably looked around and realized that it really he was going to be able to secure second easily, and maybe he pushed a lot harder to stay with him. But I think Mo is, I think Mo in the long run is an athlete we will be talking about as potentially um, having the fitness level to be a world record holder, you know. So yep. we're talking about a 103 to 104 marathoner, I mean, a 203 to 204 marathoner, not a 205 to 206 marathoner. So, um, there are different categories of, of talent there, in my opinion. No matter how hard Jake works, he still is not Mo. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the result was I, was to be expected. Um, it was great that Jake talked a little smack. It's always good to get a little bit of smack talk on a starting line. Um, I, I just think, watch out Chicago for Mo Farah. I think that's the basic thing that's said here. Four seconds faster less competition than usually than than usual he had a good runner by his shoulder but he was able to put him away and put 40 seconds on him near the end of the race so obviously there was a much more many more gears there Mo's feeling really good for his Chicago prep and I think everybody should be looking at that and wondering what is going to happen there yep agree and we'll do a full Chicago preview coming up so that will be our teaser for it I do think this bodes well for Jake Robertson, though. And, and of course, as we look at half-marathon performances before a marathon, we have to remind people that you can't be too... You can't draw too direct a line between the two things in some of these prep halves because what what it takes to run a fast half is slightly different than a fast marathon. And a lot of times these guys aren't necessarily dropping back in their mileage to do these races, so, they're, so you're not getting a, a truly peaked result. But the fact that they're both under 60 minutes, I think, bodes well for both of their races. It will be interesting to see how it plays out next month in Chicago and Toronto. On our last topic for our intro, we've got to talk about Emma Coburn's controversial comments after the Fifth mm-hmm. Avenue mile. In running the running world, we got to generate the controversy wherever we can to get a little buzz in press. 
and this is a topic that we've talked about before when we watched the Monaco women's steeple. And so it's interesting that it came back around with Coburn, but she was asked after her fifth Avenue mile by let's run.com. And so this is all quoted from let's run.com. Basically what she thought of the new world record in the steeple set by Beatrice Chepkowicz in Monaco. And she said this, she said, I think it's important to look at history and look at what happened with Ruth, referring to Ruth Jabet, who has been busted for EPO. And I do think a woman can run 845, but I don't think a woman can run 845 when for a whole season she runs nine minutes and then runs 845. I don't think that's really possible. I think nine minutes is still the holy grail of women's steeplechase, and I think that's a time that right under nine minutes athletes can run clean. So hopefully there's enough of us to get near that. Then she was asked directly after that about Chepkowicz specifically, and she says, I shouldn't comment because there is no proof to prove otherwise, but I think it's important to look at trends and history of performances and where there's big outliers we might need to pause. So, interesting that she would be so bold to comment like that. What do you think? You know, I'm a little torn on this one. I think, you know, when we when we watched that race, Chris, both, of I, both you and I, we were really shocked at the ease with which not only that she ran that time, but the ease with which she ran that time. Um, and there, there's a few things that Emma talks about here that I don't think are apples to apples. Um, Beatrice Kipchoge, in my opinion, when you watch her run could be a world-class 1500 meter runner. I mean, I think she's, I think she's run 403 or so, but I, and I think she ran that this year. But I think she's probably somebody, if she focused a little more on it, would be a sub-four-minute 1,500-meter runner. 403 is really, really fast. How many other of those, Ameri- how many of those Americans have run in that range for that time? Colleen. So nobody else, right? So, um, And Colleen is learning the steeple as opposed to you know lear- the other way around. Um, so I think that in a lot of ways, Chepkowicz is a better athlete. But I do think that the ways in which she ran that than than Emma is, um, and she's certainly a better full-on runner. She's also run fifteen fifteen for the fifteen for the five k, um, Chris. And I think that fifteen fifteen, actually she's run fourteen thirty nine. I think for the five k. So she's run really really fast, um, comparatively in the five k. And she ran fifteen fifteen this year at in Nairobi at like eight thousand feet or whatever. So I. I I, I think that there are things that show that Chep and then Chep Kowicz at the Olympics and at the World Championships, at the World Championships especially, we both picked her to win that race. We both thought she was going to win, and she went off course and fell and did all these other things. So I think that her performances from last year, it's not a Ruth Jabet scenario in my opinion. Okay, th- that's what I think. I think Chep Kowicz has shown herself to be much better runner and a much better steeplechaser in the past than Ruth Jabet did. Does that mean that she's clean? No. But I do think it's really, really interesting using the basic arguments that Emma's using, then Shelby Houlihan and Courtney Freerix should also be under a microscope because their performances from last year are so much improved. And I do think that there's a little bit of sour grapes here and a little bit of... Let's just say it's cheating um, and from Emma's perspective. Uh, 
And yes, that world record was in nine seconds, eight, nine seconds faster. The steeplechase is the dirtiest event on the women's side in the sport, at least known. It is drug cheat after drug cheat after drug cheat has been busted in that event. Um, but a lot of that is because the microscope has not been on that event, has not on that event. So it's an easy place for the IAAF and for the WADA and everybody else to go after it to clean up our sport. I'm putting quotes around it, clean up our sport because people don't give a shit about the steeple. And now people do care about the steeple. So I think we'll see a lot less drug, we'll see a lot less busts happening there, which is another whole level of conversation, right? Anyway, I, I guess I'm, 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 in a sense, I'm not throwing Emma under the bus here. I'm just saying. Be careful, be careful, because if she was good to step back before she made a statement, that could have been slander. <laughs> right. But she should be careful because that same argument could be made against her, like other Americans, and she's not making that argument. Yeah. Ooh, my feelings on this are complicated. There's many layers, but one, one fun fact before I jump into my complicated feelings, Chubkowicz's half marathon PR is a 124. <laughs> she ran one in Nairobi in 2009. I just think that's funny. <laughs> that, that is the one event <laughs> that I could compete with her. But anyway, she is ridiculously Watch fast it. across she, all levels. Yeah, Chris, she make him Chris after is going to take her down. She make him after me. <laughs> but no, she's ridiculously fast, well faster than the American athletes at other distances. 403, 1500. 1439 5k although if you look at her 3k flat race 828 that's not that crazy Mm -mm. but anyway she's fast the other thing as i pointed out as we called that race is her hurdle form is far and away better than the other Africans. way better yeah the other africans are sort of doing the bunny hop thing where they kind of lift up both their legs and go over the hurdles versus chepkowicz who has a hurdle form that rivals emma's i think in terms of its cleanliness and its power which leads me to believe that maybe just maybe this is real what we're seeing especially if you look at the improvements of Frerichs you know she dropped I believe it wasn't this year but last year going into worlds I mean she dropped 15 seconds or something like that on her PR so these outside outsized improvements in the steeple sometimes do happen because it takes some time to learn the sport and to get it down now that all being said I have a few points. One, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just continue to ramble. One, I appreciate what Emma said here. I appreciate that she's willing to call it out and ask the question. And I I also appreciate that she was smart about not specifically kind of throwing Chepkowicz under the bus with using her name. But I do think it's it's important for athletes like her to be like, hey, look, there's questions. And she wasn't saying that definitely this is a cheater she was just saying there are questions that this raises because of the jump that she made and i think there are more athletes should be willing to say those things the other thing related to that that we don't know is you know she's dealt with chepkowicz she's lined up with her she's been in under the stands with her she's seen her operate she's seen her pull things out of her bag and whatever else right Mm -hmm. so she's seen some things that we haven't seen that she's never going to probably share with the world and so maybe there are other things going into these questions in terms of the behavior she's seen from Chip Kowich that we don't know about. It's very true. And so that's something else we have to consider. Uh, but as it relates to my specific opinion of Chip Kowich, I agree with Emma. There are some questions 
for me, there's I want to continue to collect data points on Chepkowicz. You know, is this is this a performance that we're going to see sustained over periods of time? We're going to see more of these, or you know, how are how are the other kind of pieces? You know, how are she how is she going to answer questions like this when somebody asks her about Emma's comments? Those are the, the additional data points that I want to see. So my jury is still out on Chipkowitz. She's definitely got a little flag or sort of question marks in my head, just like Emma might have. But I don't think we're yet at a point where we can make hard and fast judgments on her results. Raise questions, yes. Hard and fast judgments, no. But I do appreciate Emma coming out and saying, hey, there are questions to ask here. Absolutely. So kudos to Emma. And I guarantee you, by the way, that Emma's uh, uh, this kind of stuff only motivates Emma. And so that is also going to be interesting to see, to see how she responds next year with challenges from Colleen, challenges from Courtney. What are her, what is she going to do with Joe, her, her coach and, and husband to take her running to the next level? We will see. Because she's going to have to. Yep. Because Courtney's going to jump another level. Colleen's, Colleen's already there, Colleen's and coming. Col- Colleen's going to have a much better result. So, I do think that there's a there's a lot going on here that is going to. She knows and she's understanding that in order for her to be the preeminent, she just got toppled from the the category of preeminent American steeplechaser. Um, and so. What yeah. what happens? You so gotta respond. You gotta respond. You gotta respond. So we'll see. And and can it take the pressure as yep. we've asked before? Can Emma take the pressure of this new position in American steepling? And we will see. I believe she'll respond. I think it's gonna make for exciting racing next year between those three top Americans, and I think it'll raise the game of all American steeplers. So excited to see how it plays out. All right, with that we'll transition to our listener questions. We've got a bunch to get through. We'll get through as many as we can. If we don't get to yours today, then please be patient. We'll try to get to it at some point as we roll through these. We're going to start with one that we got a little bit more recently, Steve. This is a double question from Nate in Michigan. And he has a little intro. He says, I love everything you and Steve are doing. The podcast is great. And hearing about your rogue training groups is really inspiring I had some of my best adult years of running while training with a group, and after moving to a different area, I really want to get a new group going again. Well, Nate, we have an awesome virtual group in our podcast group, and I think you would be surprised if you joined us how much accountability and collegiality there is with that virtual community. So consider that, but I won't belabor that because you have some questions for us to answer. I'm actually going to – he asked two in a different order. I'm going to flip them for the purposes of the conversation. The second question he asked, which we'll get to first, he says, in your coaching experience, have you seen any correlation between the predicted performance slash VO2 max from a Garmin and the performance of your rogue athletes? Curious if the self-coached among us can take that information as another data point in addition to race and training feedback loops. Steve, what do you think? No. <laughs> Capital N, capital O, and as many exclamation points I can put. Well, but but <laughs> I, I should I should I should also preface that with the statement of even of even a tested VO two done on a in a laboratory scenario, I would still say 
be very wary of using it as a data point, data point as well. Now, with that said, I would say any data point is a data point. The problem is it's a very, it, it is a randomized one, right? And it's not, it's not got enough nuance and enough details. It's just basing it, it's basically creating a data point based on your paces. And maybe your heart rate, what other, da what other data could it, could it be crunching? I mean, it doesn't have enough. It's just, it's just another toggle on that watch that's allowing an algorithm to, to produce a number for you that's based on other numbers that are going on on that run and on your history. So I think your heart rate is a much better option. I think your paces are a much better option. I think your feel, your efforts are much better data points. But yes... It's another data point. If it got aberrate, the one thing I would say is if you it suddenly showed something different, that might be an interesting thing to, to look at. Why did you jump? And remember, with VO2, a jump of 1, 2, 3% is big. If you see a 10% jump, you should absolutely throw that piece of shit away because it's no value whatsoever. <laughs> so I just think it, the number of data, it's just there are other things that you can use that are way more valuable. But... Again, if you want to have a spreadsheet that has another column of data points that you want to use, go for it. But realize that, that the science that went into creating that VO2 for you is much more based on the data points they already have and not based on any scientific study. And I already denigrate the idea of basing training on VO2 max in the first place. So what do you say, so, Chris? I agree with you completely. No, I've never seen anything coming off a of Garmin from a VO2 max perspective that, that would be useful. I would also throw in there that, Gar that Garmin's recovery data metric, whatever it's telling you to recover or you're at some recovery threshold. There's some metric they use for recovery on there as well. I think that's also useless information. I think you're better off using the things you mentioned, Steve, your paces, your efforts, race results, perhaps your heart rate and but maybe not your heart rate during training maybe your heart rate in the morning when you wake up like I've talked about before now I do think an, a more interesting question here Steve might be is vo2 max useful at all now if you're going to get vo2 max properly tested you go into a lab they hook you up to a machine there's different ways to do it but basically they put a mask on your head to measure the amount of oxygen you're taking in you're exhaling and then they have you run on a treadmill in at escalating efforts until you basically cry uncle. Escalating efforts or escalating inclines. Um, in, in, inclines. And yep. so usually sometimes there's both those things working where they'll increase the incline, increase the pace until you basically cry uncle and say, I can't do it anymore. Typically it lasts anywhere from 8 to 12 minutes of so just gradually increasing effort until you finally tap out. I've had it done a couple of times. And I'll tell you the only thing it's ever told me. It, it, the only thing that's ever told me is I'm not an elite athlete. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't I don't have an elite VO2 max. VO2 max is largely determined by genetics. It can be trainable, so you can see it increase over time. And the two times I was tested over time, I did get better after a history of, of working on aerobic development. So my number has increased, but it's still not an elite level VO2 max. And so that's really the only data point or the only information that that data point has ever given me that it's i am not born to be an elite runner and everything i do comes from the hard work that i put in 
And so I don't think VO2 is actually that useful in as a training metric at all, whether it comes from your garment or from a proper laboratory test. Now, you know, usually from a VO2 max test, you can get heart rate zones. You can get your heart rate zones that will correspond to different training levels. If you're using a heart rate, ba a heart rate based training protocol, like what Phil Maffetone recommends and his book, which has been great for many runners and triathletes, that could be information that you get from that test that might actually be useful in your training. But as far as that number, I don't think it's actually relevant. No, and there's a couple more points that, as you were talking, Chris, that came up into mind. Number one, it's really crucial. This is the first point is sort of an aside. If you're not going to failure, which is you calling uncle, then it's not a VO2 max test, right? Right. And, and there's a few places in Austin that they don't let you go to failure. And so you're not you're not going to know what your number is. Um, and, and so you need to go to failure, whether that's... And preferably failure is you don't sit cry uncle. They've got padding out the back of it and you fall <laughs> off the back and you keep going. You don't have to cry anything. You just try not to die. That, that's the best. When I did it at the Olympic <laughs> Training Center uh, in, in, in Colorado Springs, the last time I did it many years ago, I mean, they had... They had cushions all off the back of it. You went. You didn't talk. You didn't do anything. You just held on for as long as you possibly can. Sometimes you have a harness to protect yes, you. Yes. Yeah. Um, these were early days, so none of those things were happening. But um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so that's just an aside. That, that You do need this test to go to failure. So if you're going in to get tested on a VO2, it's not a bad test to do. But make sure you ask them if their protocol has you go to failure, even if it's your self-described failure. Because if it's not, it's really a waste of your money. Number two... The only reason VO2 really comes about, really, and the why it's in this vernacular as a discussion point are two things. Number one, science can test it, and it's a way to test for fitness. So, again, remember, we, we've got this holy grail of it being this most important thing, but it's really just a pace. We use it primarily in our training as 3K, 5K sort of paces, sometimes into 10K pace. 10K is a little bit more aerobic development, but... Um, or aerobic power, it's not really VO2, but it, it, it's been there because science has told us, and number two, science has told us because they're testing elite athletes. And that's the other place where we hear about VO2 so much, is that the kind of variable differentials that these coaches that are coaching the very best in the world, the, all these athletes are at a VO2 in the mid-80s, and the men are in the mid-80s to low-90s. That's the best in the world. And each percentage point of increase in VO2 is a huge amount of increase. And so they don't have as many variables to determine whether their training is affecting them so much or they're already incredibly well-trained, Chris, and they've been going through many, 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 many years of very scientific and very cons very well-balanced training protocols. And so the elite athlete needs these very nuanced numbers to try to determine if they're improving and those coaches use those from a laboratory scenario to be sure so it's you know those are two things it, it, it got into our vernacular from science and it stays in our vernacular because it's science based on the very fastest athletes in the world and really how appropriate is that for the average marathon or average 5k 10k runner not very um and so i just think that's another argument for why it's not so useful um, because, yes, you can see improvements, but at the end of the day, Chris, my whole argument about VO2 says this. Did you run faster on race day? Right. 
because your fucking VO2 is irrelevant if you're not running faster. Even if you got 10 points higher on your VO2, 10 percentage points higher on your VO2, if you can't PR that year, it's fucking wasted. It's a pointless. It's not really important. That's all that matters is what your result is on race day or how you're feeling about your running as an effort-based and or as a fun or an experience you want to have in your life, right? So it's it's nothing that no one's going to stand on a podium because they have the highest VO2 max. Believe me. <laughs> I know. I have a very high VO2 max. It has gotten me no fucking awards. Let me just say that. It, as a person who can, I've had many people argue, say, give me your give me your VO2. I'm like, good luck. You got to do, fucking do something with it. The number doesn't really, you still got to do something with it. It does not get you PRs. No, it does. It does not get you wins. It does not get you on podiums. So, yeah. So what are the other metrics that matter? Race results. How you feel in training versus your pace. Maybe your heart rate when you wake up as a recovery metric. So use those metrics that matter. and Break it down to the key things that you need to be doing to get better as an athlete. All right. So on to Nate's second question, which <laughs> I didn't think we would take very long on that one, but you know how we are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which was actually his first in his email. He said, in the context of adult runners, who are seeking their best, what are the theoretical minimums that a good coach must have? Or what makes you, talking to me, you and Steve, great coaches? Well, I'll start with your B, which is, I'm not sure we are. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> one of those things where, um, where who's, who's the judge and jury here? Um, I can say this, uh, Chris and I get results with our athletes. So I would say that does that make me a great coach? It makes me a great coach for the people I coach. Um, does it make me a great coach outside of that? Um, believe me, the level of esteem I hold certain coaches in, there is no way I will ever get close to approaching what a, I feel about a coach Jovi Hill or how I feel about what Jerry Schumacher has been able to accomplish on he and I are the same age. We ran against each other in college. He's coaching a level of athlete that is so disproportionately talented compared to the athletes that I'm coaching. Would we be able to be head-to-head? -head, are we head-to-head -head similar coaches? Listen, that's a specious argument that doesn't even need to be made. It's like it doesn't really fucking matter. Jerry, at the highest level, is getting great results from the best athletes in the world. That's a fucking great coach. So I'm a great coach to the athletes that I coach because I get results. Jerry's a great coach period, because he gets it from the very best athletes at the very highest levels with the most, with the most challenges. However, Jerry also has an entire, entire scientific structure behind him and an entire cadre of unlimited money, scientists, biomechanists, um, weight training, uh, the, the best in everything he has at his beck and call for an athlete that's injured or hurt. I have to say, have you gone to talk to your doctor? Can I interface with your doctor? Does your doctor even understand the kinds of things that I'm talking about? So sometimes I'm, I'm going into this you know, with my hands tied behind my back in terms of helping people get the results that they need to get. But So I would just say, I don't know. I wouldn't consider myself a great coach in the pantheon of coaches. I just consider myself a good coach to the athletes that I coach based on the fact that we get results. Um, what do you say to that B question, Chris? Well, I have no formal training as a coach, mm -hmm. right? So I think that's the tricky part about running coaching is that if you look at the certifications out there, if you look at the degrees you might want somebody to have, you know, in, in a lot of fields you can point to 
some sort of certification or degree and say, you know, if that person has that, then we know they're at least some basic level of, they'll have some basic level of performance in their field. But even that, if you, if you think about doctors ex as an example, and my wife's an MD, she has MD after her name, but there's a lot of doctors. There aren't, but not all of them are great doctors, <laughs> right? You still ask for referrals. You still talk to people. Hey, have you have you seen about this issue or for this particular thing you might be dealing with? And you're still getting recommendations and referrals. You know, the same thing with anything we do in life. Now it all comes down to like rating systems, right? But but there's no formal check boxes in the coaching running coaching world to say if a person has this certification then they're definitely going to be a good coach or this degree out of the university they're definitely going to be a good coach because there are no degrees for this stuff and so you know, i think if you look at a lot of the great coaches most of them are self-taught most of them have gone on some journey themselves to because they're passionate about the sport because they're passionate about knowledge in this area and then eventually became a coach because people trusted them enough with their knowledge and passion to lead them. And then they got the results or they didn't. And if they didn't get the results, they're probably not coaches anymore. If they did, they're coaches and they have followings and they have people that run with them. So I think that's probably a longer way to answer the same way you did, which is to say it's all about results, but where does it come from? It comes from a passion. It comes from a, a deep desire to learn everything we can about our craft as coaches, as runners. And for me, that was born in 2003 out of a, sorry, 2001 out of a stress fracture <laughs> training for my first marathon where I was like, what the hell, you know, what happened there and how can I make sure it doesn't happen again? And so I just started doing everything I could to read every book I could on the sport and on coaching in the sport and then following the elite level coaches and athletes to see what they were doing so that I could apply that in my own world and I started applying those principles in my own world and had success and then eventually people said hey what's going on in your training world and I started advising them casually on it as friends and then in grad school I started coaching a formal group because I got enough people that said hey I want to train for a 10k will you coach us and we did and then eventually got involved with Rogue and it kind of has grown from there so it's kind of been this journey and I think every coach in our sport probably has some similar story where it all sort of started with this organic passion and just lust for knowledge on the topic and has built to more and so now why do people follow us because it sounds like we know what we're talking about and because the athletes that run for us seem to be getting results so I'm coming back full circle to your world but I think all that's to say is you want to find somebody who has experience, who has athletes that rave about them, and who you then ultimately connect with personally. Yeah, I can give a couple. I'll give three or four specific things that people need to be looking for. Number one, they need to look for basic knowledge. So someone needs to be able to tell you what's going on physiologically within your body. And if they are contrary to what current science is telling us um, that they're at least well-versed in that literature and can carry on a conversation about what aerobic development is 
what a v, what VO2 max is. They need to have some basic understanding of exercise physiology terms and what happens in physiology. I mean, my degree was in history, Chris. I don't know. Economics over here. And I don't know squat about the human body. In fact, I'm always intimidated when I get around coaches who have undergrads in science or masters in exercise physiology or PhDs in that. But I also know that that doesn't make them great coaches. But I do think it's important to be able to have done the basic work. You don't ask a lawyer. You could probably fill out a bunch. You could probably get a lease together, a lease agreement together for somebody that would match what the what would be the law without being a lawyer and so you probably get by by it but you certainly wouldn't want to write a huge contract that would have so many different pieces if you didn't have a lawyer there are, you need to know basic information right number two so you need to have knowledge number two you need to have experience um someone who has more knowledge um can get away with having a little bit less experience in my opinion those who have less knowledge will need more experience in my opinion those things should be it's better to have both but those things can occasionally in my mind um, sort of offset each other in terms of value in a coaching relationship but a person who has basic knowledge and has a long level of experience is key um and that experience is very and when i say experience what i mean is coaching experience be very wary of those people who have running experience. The number of elite athletes or sub-elite athletes that I see that are out there with, out there coaching, do not know how to coach an everyday average runner. Um, I hear it all the time. I'm going to have this fast person coach me. That's dangerous. I would be more comfortable with someone who wasn't fast, who went the approach that Chris went down the road of experience, experimenting on himself and on others and using that information to garner long, a, a number of years of experiences and trying to figure out the questions why things worked and why things didn't work. Because the moment an elite athlete eats some shit sandwiches on a coaching side, they're almost all going to fucking quit. I guarantee you, I've seen it so many times. Find an elite, former elite athlete that's still coaching in their 30s and their 40s, and you now have a fantastic coach. Because if they, because it's not very often that an elite athlete will turn into a great coach. I think it's I think it's very rare that that actually happens. Um, they're too full of themselves. They're too conscious of what results mean. And they're too, they spend way too much time worrying about how this reflects on them and their reputation than it does on them in terms of how they can make you better. So be wary of that from an experience level. But the more years of experience they have coaching, the better. Another thing that I think is really important, we already talked about it, is results. I don't need to say anything else about that. But if a coach with better results is key. And finally, the last two things, Chris, are really kind of two pieces of the same puzzle. I would call it reputation and rapport. So it's like what kind – get in the – go run with that group for a little bit of time and run with their athletes and get a feel and ask them questions about their coach. Can they communicate effectively with that coach? Do they feel a coach listens to them? And does it feel like the coach will respond to their individual questions? Because in many of these situations, the only way they work financially for a person to be coaching is either the A, they are not making any money at all and they're just doing it for free, or B, they have enough athletes that they can actually consider doing it for money, right? So they're either doing it for the pleasure of it and they just love to do it, or they're doing, or they've found a way to make money at it, and that means they probably have a number of athletes that they've been able to do that with. Because if either of those two things aren't happening, then you're probably paying a disp a, a lot of money, maybe hundreds of dollars a month, to be coached by that coach. And I'm not saying that that's not worth it. I would never say a price tag would 
would make somebody a better coach or a worse coach. You would just need to feel like that was good for you. But most importantly is, does that coach have a good reputation with for the with the athletes that they're running with and does that coach have a good rapport with those athletes because chris correct me if i'm wrong but one of the most important things that we have as coaches is our ability to communicate key concepts to our athletes and then get them to act on those key concepts so communication is so crucial and critical and if you don't have a good reputation if you don't have good rapport with your athletes these things are going to be very difficult Agree with all of that. I think Nate got more than he bargained for with our answers, so yep. we'll, we'll move to the next one. But thank you for the questions, Nate, from Michigan. We really appreciate that. All right, so next one we're going to go to, I think is appropriately timed because it, I think it's a good follow-up to our What Does the Race Require series. And this particular question comes from Christine. I don't know where she's from, but she had a question about 5K training that I think will allow us to kind of pull from those episodes that we just did on that series she says i know sometimes you feature listener questions on your podcast and was hoping you could get to mine here we are christine a little background info she says i just finished an advanced 5k plan with featured peak mileage at 65 miles per week 14 to 16 mile long runs speed work tempos easy running the usual i hit every workout with ease and followed it to a t I thought since I was at peak fitness levels, my 5K would go perfectly last weekend, but that was not the case at all. It was a major struggle, and I did not improve that much since starting the plan. The last half of my race was insanely hard. I could not keep my pace up. What I noticed about the plan was the lack of race-specific workouts. Sure, I could run miles or half miles at 5K pace or even mile pace with no problems, but... And I could run 16 miles at my long run pace without getting tired, but the problem was my endurance at goal pace and keeping that up past a mile or mile and a half without stopping. Do you have any advice for my problem? I was thinking of adding 5K races into my plan here and there. Thanks again for your help. Well, that's a great question. Yep. Great question. Yep. Do you want to start on it or do you want me to start I'll on start it? start because I think there's, there's more information I would like from Christine. One is how fast did she start the race because that – is always telling and christine if you went out way too fast way past or way faster than your goal race then that could potentially explain rather easily why you struggled at the finish so that may be a small fix of just having a slightly better executed race plan my other question is did you do any 5ks before this peak race and reading between the lines it seems like perhaps you didn't and so if this one didn't go so well then i might ask that you throw one in in a couple weeks and potentially try again because sometimes just having that experience mentally at that 5k threshold where you want to die or stop versus keep going a little bit of experience at that helps you find new new limits and break through perhaps in a second or third 5k race in a season so that might be something else i would throw at you as it relates to your training itself a couple comments one I would say that whatever you accomplish in this cycle, you should take the victories from your training. I would imagine that you got to potentially a higher mileage level consistently than you've ever gotten to, maybe consistently longer long runs in a 5K training block than you've ever gotten to. And sometimes those results don't always pan out for you right in that cycle, but will pan out for you in future cycles. So I want to just encourage you by saying that 
whatever you did in training for this cycle, even if the PR didn't come in the way you wanted it to come, it's worth it because it will be something you can build on for future cycles. Secondly, it does look like you PR'd. You know, it said you you said I basically didn't get quite what I wanted, but I did improve essentially. Or I did not improve that much in starting the plan, but you did improve is the implication of that comment. So take whatever improvement you got and celebrate that because every PR has to come in some chunks and they don't they don't always come in the chunks that we script or write. And so take that as a victory. And consider, as I often say, a PR is a PR is a PR. So celebrate that and move on into the next cycle. And as I said in my first point, leverage what you learned in this this cycle to build for your next one. Then the last thing I'll say as it relates to race-specific workouts, definitely go back and listen to our What, what Is the Race Require episode number two, part two, where we talked about the 5K specifically because we did talk about some 5K-specific workouts that I think would help you. I think about the Aussie 5k as an example where instead of doing repeats at 5k pace with set rest, you're floating at 5k pace for 200 on 200 off. So you're not necessarily getting a full recovery, but you're, you're still you know working both the aerobic system as well as the VO2 max side of things. So, so some of those workouts that we referenced in that episode where you're actually doing 5k pace with either a float or with short rest will allow you to extend what you're doing in those races and hold it for longer. And then the last thing I'll say is don't neglect the need to continue to build your volume and build your long run distance because even though it may not seem directly related, the ability to continue to turn out 65 mile weeks, perhaps even building those further maybe even getting up to some 18 mile long runs, that aerobic development will allow you to continue to use that 5k speed for longer and longer periods during your workout. So those are some tips from me. Steve, what do you have? Number one, I think Chris, you said this, um, in a, in a sort of roundabout general way, but a lot of what you just dealt with is the fucking 5k. (laughs) It's really, really hard. And, and if you have not run enough 5ks, it's going to feel exactly the way you described. And I agree with Chris, hop back on it. Jump back on it. Don't give up on that. You're probably ready for another one pretty soon. Um, Number two, remember this. You don't get to take a break in a race. So, so much of what we see in 5K training programs, even at the advanced level, has too much recovery or recovery is done or they're not long enough repetitions. And so look at what you're doing in terms of those race-specific pace work. You may be doing a good bit of work but like chris said are you doing a float for your 5k on on, in your 5k workouts are you are you doing 1k mile repeats 2k repeats at your 5k pace at least one of those a ladder would be great a 2k at at 5k pace that's five laps you know you need those longer repetitions for your body to be able to know what it's going to go through because what happens in a 5k is that all hit the shit hits the fan in the last third and all of that everything that happens in a 5k prior to that is just how easy were you able to get through that portion before the shit hits you because it's going to hit you in a 5k no matter what just like the marathon that's why we call those as sort of sister races so keep that in mind that you need to do some longer reps another workout that i love is chris mentioned the aussie 5k 
Another one is the Monogetti fight, the Monogetti fartlek, which is a great workout. You do. It's basically two ninety-second reps, four sixty-second reps, four thirty-second reps, and four fifteen-second reps. So it's nineties, and then the rest is equal rest. So it's a fart like so you go 90 seconds on, 90 seconds off, 90 seconds on, 90 seconds off, 60 seconds on, 60 seconds off, and it goes through that cycle. But you also try to run as fast as you can on your recovery or float or try to run as, as quality a recovery as you possibly can while hitting those really fast paces. Um, and you're supposed to go for it on those ons. Um, and what you're doing is really simulating a lot of what's going to be happening later on in the race at that last third of the race. The Monogetti Fartlek is great. You can just Google search Monogetti Fartlek and you'll get multiple different experiences of elite athletes having done that work. You'll also get a Runner's World article, a Running Times article. You'll get a number of different articles on the Monogetti Fartlek specifically. That's another session I might throw in there, Chris. Awesome. Well, I think that thoroughly covers it but keep up the good work christine you're doing all the right things and don't and don't forget and you put you put as chris said you put money in the bank yeah you can deposit you can pull that money out later on in a different training cycle that's right don't get too discouraged keep doing the work it'll come all right next one as we go through our questions here this one comes from diana who hails from chicago illinois she says, recently after the Mary Margaret podcast, I've been re-listening to some of the basics such as miles matter. And I'm wondering if I'm short on time for a long run, sometimes I work weekends, is it better to run slow for a set period of time, possibly missing one to two miles, or is it okay, as I usually do, to increase the pace 15 to 30 seconds per mile to fit it all in? Interesting question. Throw that one to you first, Steve. Wow, that's a that's a tough one. What I would say is you probably, I would I don't want to go binary, right? I don't want to go zero one. I don't want to go yes no. What I want to say is both. Um, maybe <laughs> alternate that. So alternate it if you know that. I think sometimes you need to go the distance. Um, it sounds like you're doing things based on time anyway. It looks like your long run is time based based on that question. You didn't say anything about specific mileage, but. Um, Ultimately, I think that you you need to get the longest volume in you possibly can, and you need to be extending your volume on occasion. And on those days, um, no, you need to go slower, and um, you need to get the full the full volume in, and not and not quote unquote cheat. Although your cheat is not really a cheat because you're getting basically you're doing what Chris and I would call a close, um, and you're getting some up tempo work, which at the end of a long run, which is hugely valuable, especially if you're going to be a half marathon or marathoner. If those two races are in your future, coming in your future, then a close or a fast finish at the end of your runs occasionally um, is very valuable. So what I would say is alternate them. Don't then you get both. It doesn't have to be binary, a, a yes or no, or one or the other. You can get both by alternating each each weekend or every other weekend or however you line up your long runs. I think both is the right answer here, Steve. I do think there's a point to make here, which is that part of the answer to this question depends on what's the purpose of the day. And we talk about that often. It's making sure that your pace for a given run fits the purpose of the day. If it's a recovery run, it should be slow. Certain long runs should be slow. We've typically recommended at least a minute per mile slower than your marathon pace on easy long runs in order to get into the right aerobic development zone. 
But we've also recommended, as we did on our last podcast, some long runs with pace work where the purpose is going to be different. It's not necessarily to build the aerobic system. It's more to build your resilience for those the long races that you might be doing, whether they be a half marathon or marathon. And so the question comes down to you, how do you fit the purpose of each of these long runs in with your schedule if you're working weekends so that you're able to sprinkle in some of these days where you're getting the the right aerobic development you need by simply running an easy pace for a certain amount of time versus some other weekends where you might be doing a long run adding in pace work in order to get that resilience to cover the marathon distance as well as practice your race pace within the long run itself because as i said on a recent training podcast episode steve if the purpose of a day just and I'll use a recovery day as an example. If the purpose of that day is to run easy, create movement which promotes blood flow, which promotes healing, and I was to run 40 minutes on that day, running 40 minutes at a slower pace on a recovery run day might actually be better for you and more appropriate, better for your long-term development as an athlete than to run f- a faster 40 minutes than to get more mileage in in those 40 minutes if you're running too fast so that you get to a point where you're not recovering. So there is certainly a time and a place where slower is better, where running by time is more important than running by mileage or by pace. But I would just say, as you're mixing things up, as Steve alluded to, that you think about instead of for those long runs where you're going a little faster, instead of just saying I'm going to run 15 to 30 seconds per mile faster for the entire long run, instead of doing that, I would say mix it up so that either you're closing, as you alluded to, Steve, or you're using some of those workouts that we gave last week as an example in order to finish the overall thing faster. So you might start with, let's say you're doing a 16-mile long run, or that's what's on your schedule. You might start with four miles easy at your easy long run pace, switch into five miles at marathon goal pace for a period of time, then do a mile easy, another five miles at marathon goal pace, which actually puts us already at 16, I think. So maybe I'm doing my math slightly wrong, but then cool down for the rest of it. So my, but my point is simply that you build a workout that on the whole might be 15 or 30 seconds per mile faster than your uh, than the pace you normally target for long runs, but you structure in such a way that you get a specific purpose out of it, that you use it to build for what the race requires, for what you're planning for, for your your marathon. So hopefully that answers your question, Diana. It's a good one, certainly. Anything to add on that, Steve? No. All right, let's continue to scroll through here on our questions. The next one we'll get to is from Eric. He is training for the Dallas Marathon in the first weekend of December, for those that don't know the Dallas Marathon. And he says... With all of the training I'm doing, I know I'm getting faster and stronger, and I'm just itching to race. My question is, when is the best time to schedule a race when I'm training for a marathon? Should I look to run a race on a drop week? Should I even be racing at all or be patient and focus on my training? So we've answered this question here and there, maybe in different ways, but I don't know that we've ever sort of laid it out specifically and 
if Eric has the question, maybe we haven't. So how would you answer that one, Steve? Um, first off, let's be sure that we look at a race appropriately. And I'd say there's two ways to look at a race. Command performance or a means to an end. Those are your two options, in my opinion. Um, in this case, it sounds like you're, you need to make sure, and, that I, and I think I say this outright, Chris, because recently with our podcast training group, frequently I'm hearing people who are saying they want to race and they're telling me that it's a means to an end, but they're experiencing it or discussing it or talking about it afterwards or there's enough context for me to realize that they may be considered a little bit more of a command performance and that they didn't appropriately plan for they didn't they didn't have it in the right place and so they 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 were disappointed if you if your race if it's not a command performance you have no fucking right to be disappointed in your race in my opinion it's just another data point and it's another thing to check unless you didn't give best effort right because it's a means to an end and what it is basically at that point in time it becomes the best workout you can possibly do in that energy system so a 5k is the best vo2 max workout you can possibly do a 3k isn't even is as good but just a little bit fat it's a little bit different so the 10k is the best aerobic power workout you can possibly do a half marathon is the best um, threshold workout you can possibly do so these as long as if you look at it that way that it's either a command performance where you're actually having the best performance you can possibly have and it's all cut dialing into one exp experience of it then it's a means to an end so you're either checking a physiological box off which is one means to an end and the, or a secondary means to an end is it is a it is a race that's designed to help you prepare for your big command performance. So here in Austin, as we prepare for a California International Marathon, we're going to use a 10-miler around town that's super hilly and very tough course to try to get ourselves ready or have a, give ourselves a race experience prior to our big race at CIM. And so it meets this requirement. It's, it's basically you're doing it's, it for a reason. It's but It's four weeks out. It's four weeks out. You're doing it for a reason, which is, to get a good effort in, to test your gear, to test your mindset, to test your ment mental game. But it's still a means to an end, Chris. It's not a, an end in and of itself. And so those are the, that's the first, the first space I think everybody needs to go into. Number two, once you've decided that, then you need to look at your training cycle and be sure that you've got where you're going to position that race is. So I'm assuming at this point in time, now we've gone question A or B. It's question is now B. You have moved on to a means to an end. So then you say, okay, what is the race? Well, the race is a half marathon. Well, in the last three weeks, if you've done three tempo type runs, then you don't need another half marathon. You don't need a half marathon race result because it's going to move into the zone of you wanting it to be a command performance. And number two, you've already done a lot of that work. You don't need that physiological box checked off. So that's where a 5K might be more appropriate because maybe you hadn't done 5K work. So if you're doing a varied training plan that has a lot of different energy systems all the time, then you're probably pretty okay to jump in a race every, what do you say, three weeks or four weeks or so. Um, and, and make sure that you've looked around your training cycle in advance and coming off of it and make sure you're not duplicating specifically in the week prior and the week after that specific energy system or that specific pace, that specific race distance focus, a 5k workout. Don't do a 5k the week before or the week after use that 5k as an, as a substitute for it. Um, so those are the two basic things I would say right off the bat, Chris, that I think are important. Make sure you've got your head straight and you know why you're doing the workout, where, why you're doing the race and where it sits. And then make sure that you're not duplicating too much of the same energy system. Um, the only caveat I make to this statement is you probably can't race too many 5Ks. 
I do think that racing 5Ks, there's all, as as we just said earlier in this podcast specifically, the was it wasn't Christine who said she had a tough experience in the 5K? She probably didn't run enough 5K races. So the 5K race is the best 5K workout you can possibly do, period, bar none, in my opinion. And so racing a 5K sometimes can be substituted ad nauseum for a 5K workout. But just be wary of doing a 5K workout and then a 5K race and then a 5K workout. That's too much of the same energy system. You don't want to be doing that many back-to-back. Plus, if you're training for the marathon, you don't want to do affect your long runs. Right. Either. So... I guess I have a few things to add. Alluding to your opening on this question, a lot of times people want to get greedy mm. <laughs> with these with these races in that, as you were saying, they sort of, in, on one level they're saying, well, this is a prep race, right? But then really deep down they're thinking, I want to get a PR or... I, you know, this race means something to me more than just a build race to the next thing. And that's, as you said, where it gets really dangerous when people get greedy. Because in choosing prep races, just like in choosing how you approach your training, you have to ask yourself the same question. What does the race require? What does the race require for you to be ready to run that marathon in Dallas on December 9th? And part of the answers to that question are personal in that, it's going to depend on what you need specifically in order to get ready for Dallas and what races you might have access to. You know, sometimes for some of my athletes who have struggles in marathons delivering on their training, their fitness, I like to have them race a little bit more inside a training block because I know that if they get more start line experiences, especially with a specific plan that we develop in mind, and it gives them the confidence to take into that race. And so I might recommend some more build races for somebody who might just need practice executing on race day or building confidence to deliver their fitness on race day. Some people need help pacing or learning how to just simply execute a race plan. And so I might have them do races with specific things in mind so that they can practice that before they get to their big race. Other people just want a confidence building data point and so sometimes we'll do that as well you know we like 10ks a couple weeks out from marathons you know those two at least two weeks out from a marathon is a really good final cherry on the top of a marathon training block because we like to do a 10k workout in that time frame we also think a half marathon anywhere from three to eight weeks out could be a good data point as well as a threshold workout, as you said, Steve, to build to your race. But I don't think you have to. I don't think you have to necessarily pick the race. You know, in the context of what your training block looks like, too closely because it really comes down to if you're gonna choose a build race, what races excite you? Because I don't want you to just go do a race some random place just because it's on a weekend that happens to fit with your training schedule. More more than that, I want you to look at the races out there. You know, maybe you live in Dallas and we'll have options in Dallas. And so there's, are there races in Dallas that are interesting to you that other people are doing that you get excited about that you might have some history with that you can use to help build things. And then 
after you pick that, if it fits into that window that seems to make sense for Dallas, you know, then see how it dovetails with your training program in order to fit it all together. And sometimes you can shift your down weeks around in order to make that work. If it falls on a down week, obviously that's a good time to race, but it doesn't have to be that way. You can always move things around. And sometimes, you know, you might put it together and just roll through your training. You know, I had a guy who approached me today and he said, hey, I'd like to do this 5K this coming weekend in Austin because it's the first race in the distance challenge. And I might ultimately do the distance challenge. So is it okay if I do that? And so we just had a conversation about does that and he's training for a marathon in December. So we had a conversation. What does that mean for your 20 mile run that you have this weekend? And we ultimately decided he was supposed to do 20 miles with pace work on Saturday. We ultimately decided together to do a 20 mile easy run and then go race the 5k instead on Sunday as, as a good opportunity to, you know, both get in some good work and test his fitness. So there's lots of ways you can fit it together depending on the races you want to do, but make sure one, as we both alluded to that it fits with within the context of your goal race. And it's a build to that. And two, that it's something you want to do that fits with the strengths and weaknesses that you're bringing to the table. So there you go. Hopefully that helps Eric and good luck as you build for the Dallas marathon in December. All right, next one, Steve, and this will be our final one today as we're at about an hour and 15 minutes in this one comes from somebody who had some questions about us or at least about rogue that i thought were worth worth asking and we haven't always answered or given the full context so so he says this as a little bit of a preamble he says one thing i've picked up in my listening is how many folks you have on the show is how how many folks you have on the show that take a long-term view of their involvement in the sport of running I've considered what my life may look like 10 to 15 years down the road with PRs when PRs will be much more difficult to come by. Part of that future, I hope, will include coaching. I'm currently training three athletes and hoping to add more this fall. I also desire to see a more competitive running team atmosphere develop in my city, which leads to a few questions. How did Rogue get its start? You've alluded to its history on the show, but I'm curious what tips and lessons could be shared for someone wishing to start something similar. That's question one. Two, in relation to question one, does Rogue have satellite cities or sister cities and any sort of transplant model? And three, for a new coach starting out, what would be some tips you would offer? I guess, um, so Rogue started out basically with me painting my mom's house. (laughs) <laughs> that sounds really weird. No, I'd pretty depressed just coming off of a a big life change in 2002. Um, and I had been coaching on and off for many years, um, but not what I would call professionally. I mean, I, I coached with a local running shoe store. They had free training groups that people could come to and I would create workouts for them, but I didn't know who would be showing up. We called them show-and-go workouts. People would just show up, and we would go out and do the workout, and um, there was no real rhyme or reason to it. At the same time, I was also helping some high school kids who came to me who wanted some help in their coaching to get ready for races. Um, I'd coached um, a few friends to half marathons or marathons, but nothing serious. And 
I was approached by the local running shoe store in Austin that I had worked at for many years, and the owner of that store, Paul Carroza, said, hey, I want to do four fee-based for-profit training programs, which didn't exist at the time, at least in our community, and I think you're the guy to do it, and I know you're kind of sitting around with your thumb up your rear end not doing anything, and I was like, that is very accurate, so I'll come up and let's do this, and uh, within two years, we'd set up marathon training, half marathon training, 5K training, 10K training programs um, to get people ready for races, and looking at two basic models, which is number one, creating command performances for athletes, getting them ready for one big race rather than just racing willy-nilly whatever came around and getting ready for that race. And number two, doing that in a way that sort of brought an elite mindset or at least the kind of quality workouts that elite athletes were doing um, that could be then modified or adjusted in some way for the average everyday runner. Um, that was my philosophy. I thought everybody should be getting ready for big races or having in their mind a big race rather than just running willy-nilly. Number two, I also thought that many many of these adult athletes would be able to manage and do workouts that elite athletes did as long as the paces were appropriate. Um, and over a two-year period, um, we, this was called Runtex University. We were extremely successful in getting that accomplished. And um, about two years in, Paul decided that he wanted to go a different direction with training and decided he wasn't going to continue to do that. And I said, well, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because it seems to be working really well. And uh, Rogue was born in 2004. Um, so that's how we started, again, with a focus on um, getting ready for one big race um, and using other races as, 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 as sort of feeders for it. And number two, treating most of our runners as if they could handle more than they thought they could. And, you know, as I over that first two years, what I realized, Chris, was, holy shit, people can do these adults can do as much. In fact, in many cases over the years, I found out that my adults can do more than my elite athletes can because they're coming at such a deficit in the aerobic development area that they were just continuing to improve and improve and improve drastically. Um, and so by treating them as sort of second-class athletes, um, I think a lot of uh, success was missed. And so the success that Rogue has had over the years has been based on command performances and, um, and treating, athlete, treating runners as athletes. Those are the first two things. So that's the that's the answer to question number one. <laughs> Started in 2004. We've evolved since then. We're now 14 years old. We'll be going on 15 next August. In terms of our training history, one thing he asked as part of that question, one tips and lessons that we've learned along the way. And and I, I got involved in 2000, late 2009 early 2010 with Rogue. And so I didn't have a hand in the genesis, but have certainly played a big role over the last eight years. And as I've sort of reflected on the history with Steve and others, Ruth and Carolyn and others have played a part in our world. You know, I, some tips and lessons would be one, it's a passion project. It is absolutely a passion project. We've, never made rogue about being a business or at least we've tried not to and at times that we have tried to make it about the business we've stumbled and had challenges and so we've tried to through the years keep it that which is that it's a passion project and ultimately in our experience at least 
the way we approach it as that passion project. Nobody's getting rich, you know, off of this. And if that's your idea of success or if this is about money somehow, then it's not going to work. It has to be a passion project. It has to be coming from an authentic place. And we've tried to do that through the years. And anytime we lost sight of that, we've stubbed, stubbed our toe for sure. So that's one thing. And then secondly, I think Rogue in our history has done a good job of staying laser focused. Yeah, certainly at times we've seen this shiny thing to the left and to the right, but we've had really good conversations through the years of any time some shiny new thing has come along. We've it's forced us to recommit to what we really do well, which is coach athletes to be better runners. First and foremost, and you know, other types of training have come in. Certainly we've done a little try coaching, but it was primarily for runners who wanted to do some tries as a secondary thing in their world over the summer to escape some of the heat. But we've always focused, been laser focused on runners and anything else that's come up. That's where we've kept it. And as a result of that laser focus, I think we've had a long history from it. I think the last thing I would say is that you do have to, though, still constantly learn and evolve. You know, in the 14, close to 15 years that we've been doing this, our training schedules have looked different every year. Things we've learned, and certainly the core principles haven't really changed. Some of them maybe have evolved, but the core, the, but our, our schedules have changed every year. We've constantly learned. We've constantly added elements, tried new things, had our athletes do different race distances, try different races. And that constant evolution, I think, has kept it fresh, both from a coaching standpoint but also from an athlete and community standpoint and being able to connect people with each other that want to meet and beat big goals together. That constant kind of evolution and changing has been a, a big part of what we've has kept us going for this long. So those are some tips if they're useful in relation to your second question. Does rogue have satellites, satellite cities? Is there any sort of transplant model? And we are working on that. Obviously, we're based here in Austin, Texas, but we have a joint venture with a company called Jackrabbit that owns retail stores around the country. I believe they're at 60-plus doors now. They've got stores in the Denver area, in New York, in Dallas, in Fort Worth, in Texas, in Houston, and really all over the country. And we formed a joint venture with them last year to take our training model to other cities that are connected to their stores. The first experiment with that is Dallas where we have training now that we're calling rogue training in Dallas through the run on stores there which those run on stores are owned by Jackrabbit and we're hopeful that as we have success with that extension in Dallas we'll be able to take it to other cities which we're working on can't name any of those yet but stay tuned there may be a rogue coming near you and if you're somebody who wants to consider some sort of transplant I would just say reach out and let's talk about it one more thing I want to say, Chris. <clears throat> One thing I would I want to express to this questioner is you you can bring all that you can bring to this, and you can be an amazing coach, an amazing uh, uh, someone who people want to follow. Um, but if you don't have a community, if you don't have people who want 
better themselves and to push themselves, it's not going to work. The reason why Rogue has succeeded, in my opinion, is because we don't show and go. We have a purpose. We know what we're getting ready for, and we go for it. Um, and, and it may be that what you're trying to develop, is it what Rogue is doing? If it is, then there's probably a way to transplant it and to do things. But it's, but it has to be the community driving it. Um, and you have to then, if you don't already have an existing community, then you're going to need to work primarily on developing a community. Um, and that that really is crucial and key. And if you don't have the skill set to be able to take a wide variety of different abilities, a wide variety of different talents, a wide variety of different personality types, a wide variety of different ethnic backgrounds, and bring them all together going towards a common goal, then no matter what you think you're going to try to accomplish, it won't be successful. It is required a community, and that means it requires something more than you. So keep that in mind as you think through this and realize that there's a little bit of magic that has to happen for this to work. It's not a business model. It's a community-based model. It won't make you rich, as Chris said. In fact, it'll probably make you more financially poor than rich, but it will feed back. It will, it will, what you make, what you will be repaid in is a bigger community, a greater community, and certainly what I think a lot of people are looking for, which are alternative versions of church. And so if you don't look at it that way, more of it along the lines of a nonprofit slash um, community-driven model, um, not that you won't necessarily make money, but it should definitely be more about community and more about building passion, as Chris said, than it is about generating revenue. Bottom, line success, bottom lines will not be successful if the bottom line is what you're looking for. I can tell you that for sure. That I can guarantee you. And as it relates to your last question, for a new coach starting out, what would be the tips you would offer? A couple things for me is, as I alluded to in telling my story a little bit earlier on the other question, is that, you know, this has to be a passion. And as a coach, you have to have a passion for helping people in this way. I think I've told this story on this podcast before, or maybe I have on the training podcast. I don't remember, but I was pre-med in college and was sort of interacting with our pediatrician over the summer after my freshman year in college. And he asked me a simple question. He said, do you want to help people in this way, referring to being a doctor? If It's not worth it to go into medicine unless you want to help people in this way. And I realized in that exact moment, he didn't even have to ask a follow-up or I didn't even have to think about it. I knew my answer. Like I didn't. I already knew I didn't want to help people in that way. But I found later that this is how I want to help people, that I believe that this is a calling for me, my way of reaching out to others. And when you find that, it's a really powerful thing. And I think you'll know because you'll have an insatiable desire to learn more about your craft. You'll have an insatiable desire to help people in this sport and so you want to use that as a litmus test to know whether you should continue to pursue it and then after that just let that passion let that hunger for knowledge just lead you wherever it may be to all the books you can find to all the conversations you can have to all the podcasts you can listen to you can't really then soak in enough information to process it i wouldn't necessarily go out and get a certification on this stuff i don't think any of the ones that are out there are are worth it worth the money or the time but instead, just study the great coaches, study the great 
elite athlete coaches, study the great elite coaching books, some of the, some of whom we've referenced on this podcast, and then get your experience working with the athletes that you can. And every time you have an athlete performance, go back and check that against your expectations and check your work with them and learn from it. You know, every single season I have an athlete, a group of athletes finish their races, which for us, typically sometime late in the fall after we've had a bunch of fall races and sometime late in the spring after we've had a bunch of January to spring races, I will literally sit down, write out all the command performances that I've been tracking for my athletes, what their goals were, whether or not they hit those goals, and then I'll try to learn from it and figure out where maybe I went wrong if we didn't have as many you know, wins as I wanted or where we had success that we could build on if we did have a bunch of wins. And so I'm constantly checking how I'm doing things and against results so that I can evolve and adapt as I need to, not only in the context of my overall programming, but also in the context of the athletes that I coach. Because at the end of the day, and we've kind of alluded to this already, you're only a coach if people want to be coached by you. Like that's the ultimate litmus test. Like do people want to be, or do people want you as their coach? Because if they don't, you're not a coach. You're somebody who wants to be a coach. And so if you have more people coming under you and then that builds this momentum, then you'll see it all play out the way it should. But those are my tips. Final thoughts from you, Steve. Um, You covered a ton of it. A lot of it got covered in the other conversation we had about what makes great coaches. Um, one, I just will reiterate the final point I made there, which is another thing to end on, which is communication. Um, I would highly recommend that you work on a communication schedule or a communication process, one that's authentic to you, that works for you, but an ability to have a great rapport with your athletes and communicate effectively with them. That's going to be a greater success builder. Um, it needs results, but if you get results and you don't have rapport, it's not going to go anywhere. If you don't have communication effectively, if you do, don't do get results, but you have great communication, eventually you will get great results because you're listening to your athletes and you're going to have that line of communication. And by communication, it's not binary. It's not one directional. It needs to be a give and a take and a back and a forth where you're learning, as Chris said. what Your results need some kind of context. And so communication with your athletes, creating rapport with your athletes creates that context that allows you to see because there's times, Chris, where we've at this game where we've just had failure after failure after failure after failure. And I mean, if I had just considered that as my six, whether or not I should continue to coach or not, I probably should have stopped a long time ago. Um, <laughs> now we seem to be having great result after great after great result. Um, but I learned a lot from my athletes in those processes of not getting those great results sometimes. And so just be open to the fact that communication is going to be really key for you um, to make a successful stab at being a great coach so there you go david hopefully that's helpful i now see i think i didn't mention but you're from louisville kentucky so thanks for your question all the way from louisville and thanks for everybody's questions today all good stuff i know we didn't get to all of them i had in my list here and so if we didn't get to yours that's okay we will hopefully get to it on a future listener questions episode and if you have a question certainly send those to us my email is chris at roguerunning.com. You can definitely reach out at any point and we'll put your questions in the hopper for the next episode like this one. Now, one final note before we go. I just wanted to mention that our next podcast, not this one, episode 92, but episode 93, will be slightly delayed due to some, do some travel and recording obligations. That one will go up 
actually on a Tuesday instead of a Sunday. So if you're looking for our next one after this one, just give us a couple of extra days in the next cycle and we'll have that to you and maybe go back and listen to an old one you haven't heard in a while or haven't listened to yet in the meantime. So that's it for today. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.